back together and study. Turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Word, 1 Timothy 4. If you've been with us, you know we're going to continuing study through pastoral epistles. We're in chapter 4, right about the end. We're going to finish today, Lord willing, and so I'd like you to turn there. As you're doing that, a special thank you to Bill and, and uh, Tussie and his willingness to be here with you and last week. Powerful Gideon International Ministry presentation, and really, yeah, and I've heard lots of those and had the blessings of being with them in their annual meetings, but I've never heard two more powerful testimonies. If you were here, were you here last week, if you were here last week when Bill was presenting, those two testimonies, those were so powerful and uh, illustrating how, how um, significant the Word of God is to someone as they read it for the first time. What a joy it was to hear that. On the way home, I was driving back from the campground and listened to that message. What a blessing it was to my own heart. And then also, we had a special time Wednesday through Sunday uh, last week with our men and their sons as we did our annual men's camp out. Really great weather, a lot of fun together, a lot of uh, equipping and discipling and encouraging and, and just uh, giving each other a hard time. And then Daniel Wisby brought a message just for our men on Sunday morning. So what a joy it was to be together with them. Now we have had a great time in our study of 1 Timothy 4, and I'd like you to take a look back with me. Look at verse 11, if you would. Uh, as we begin to wrap up this section, we've entitled Pursuing Godliness, Success from God's Perspective. And as you turn, you probably remember if you've been with us, if not, as you start this chapter, you move from false teaching and false teachers and all the sources of all that, verses 1 through 5, uh, those who thought they knew the keys to godliness, and then to verses 6 through 8, which gave us the correct spiritual diet, coupled along with the right kind of spiritual workout to begin to shape the believer as God would desire. And then we came to a summary statement as we got to verses 9 and 10 of why we do what we do. And then we arrived at verse 11. And Paul illustrates for Timothy, for the church, what really godliness looks like and, and the, the assurance of success from God's perspective if ministry is done this way because he is ultimately our audience of one. And to that end, Paul says in verse 11, he says, Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example to those who believe. And that was in this section we've entitled Success from God's Perspective, uh, Pursuing Godliness. We saw in principle number one, uh, take the clear instruction from the Word of God and command it and teach it. Paul had taught Timothy things the church needed to hear. He said, listen, this is what you need to make sure that you are using as your source. Very important uh, general understanding of the importance of the Word of God and uh, the role it plays in the life of the church. And then for Timothy, no matter how you feel about yourself, no matter whether you're intimidated, no matter who may oppose you, whether you feel like doing it or not, doing this faithfully is success from God's perspective. And then we so, uh, look at this next part. He says, show yourself an example to those who believe. That was principle number two. What is success from God's perspective, and really that's a character marked by godliness. And Paul says, Timothy, show that you've been formed, you've been stamped. That's what it means to show yourself an example. You're stamped in the image of godliness. So instead of careless speech, instead of reckless conduct, instead of self-centeredness, instead of wavering commitment, instead of lustful thoughts in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, uh, be an example. And when you think about speech, show people what a self-controlled tongue looks like. You want to be considered godly. You want people to begin to revere you as a godly person. And whatever you say should be marked by godliness. And then in conduct, that's just whatever it is that we do on a day-to-day -day basis, how we go about our day, 
We should be an example, stamped by godliness. We should be able to ask the right questions about our priorities and have them line up then underneath what the Word of God says is important. And then in love, we looked at all this extensively, just summarizing it for you. Let your life be marked by self-sacrificing service in the lives of others. Love God, God's people to the point where you just give away all your energy, you give away all your time for the purpose of communicating the things that the Lord wants them to know. You have a job, you have to take care of your family, you have to bring in an income, you have to work hard for your employer so that uh, the, word of God, the, the word of the Lord and the gospel is adorned. But in light of all that, remember that you have to be an example of love and love is self-sacrificing. Love is giving yourself away for the things that matter. And then be an example, be stamped in faith and that's the, what's the word faithfulness has to do with trustworthiness and loyalty and dependability. The idea is to be consistent, be marked that way. That's godliness, is consistency in doing ministry. Hang in there for the long term. Don't waver back and forth. Serve Jesus through all the years of your life. And then in purity. That's the word for being at war with the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, and of the mind. That's a constant war. It's never going to be over until you have a glorified body because those, uh, those fleshly things uh, find their appetite in our unredeemed flesh and mark then in your life as excluding from your life any form of ungodliness and worldliness. Make sure you're, you're wise in how you go about that. You should be able to know how to uh, manage your own vessel, First Thessalonians 4 says, in sanctification and honor, which means that you have to know where you're getting tripped up and then you have to make sure that you're not being tripped up. Exclude those things that are causing you difficulty. That's what success from God's perspective, that's what marked by godliness looks like. And then look at verse 13. He says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. And I love this because, again, you know, 1 Timothy 3 tells us that Paul wrote this letter so we know how to conduct ourselves in the household of faith, which is the church at Pillar of Support of the Truth. So anything you see here as a matter of order, as a matter of direction, as a matter of instruction, things that you focus on, these are non-negotiables. And what we saw in this simple sentence, until I come give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching, we saw there's a significant text here defining the major work of the pastor and the worship of the church. And we saw give attention to really indicates this is to become your way of life. And we saw that as Paul gives this priority to those who lead, he didn't leave it open for a subjective definition. In other words, yeah, we have, you know, we have... Um, we have a biblical ministry and the, you know, all of that. He says, listen, this is what success from God's perspective looks like. It's going to be a pulpit ministry that includes the public reading of Scripture. And we saw that it is the reading. And we looked at that because it's referring to something. And the reading is, and has always been for 2,500 years, reading of Scripture with an exposition. In other words, it embodied a reading and an explanation of the Scriptures. So the text itself then drives what comes next which is an explanation of the text. And we saw that that was the norm for all this time, 2,500 years. We saw examples as we went through this from the Old Testament, from Jesus's life on earth, from the examples of Paul in the synagogue and later in the first century church. That is the norm to take the text and the preaching that follows is secondary to and derived from the reading of the text, not from what you want to do. And not only the reading, what did the word say and what did it mean by what it says? So you're, you're explaining that, that's not the end, but also very objectively to the exhortation. So give attention to the exhortation. That's the application of the passage. Uh, the word is read, it's explained, then it's applied. 
And so that means warning people, that means encouraging people, it's the doing of the passage, it's getting to the end, and people say, that's why it's included in the Word of God. This is what it means. Not This is what it means to me, it doesn't matter what it means to you. What does it mean, and how do you apply it? Because this is the source of all sanctification. You don't grow in the Word of God, you don't grow in your walk with the Lord, unless you are taking uh, what the Word says, what it means by what it says, and then making application and saying, this is how I have to live, or I can't live like this any longer. And as a teacher, you want to make sure they go out knowing those things. Whether or not they do them is going to be between them and the Lord, but they've been given the correct instruction. So there's not some uh, subjective way to go about the pulpit ministry, as we see very often in, in churches across the country and across the world. This is very specific, and we understand then what it says. And then it says, not only are we to do the reading and then the exhortation, which is the application, but the teaching. And that is just the general official job of instructing those who are in your charge, and you use the Word of God as the source for all of life. You're going to do that with your children. You're going to do that with the people around you as they come and seek you out and ask questions. Listen, you're going to notice nothing is left here that's up to the pastor to decide what he wants to do and what public worship is supposed to look like. As it applies to the central focus and the main priority, it is to include these three things every single time, over and over again. And anything that moves away from those three things, those very objective definitions of what the pulpit ministry is to look like, uh, the job of the teacher is to move into the adulteration of the word or the peddling of the word of God. You're moving away from just commenting directly and exp- expository types of uh, understanding, explaining it to people, exegeting it, and then applying it. That's your job. And anything that moves away from that just adulterates the word of God over and over again. It peddles the word of God. You try to make it look nicer. You try to dress it up. You try to lose words that people might not understand. Whatever it may be, You've moved away from the standard, and now that standard, of course, now has become the exception. People just don't do it anymore, and they've moved away into these kinds of things. And now we took some time with that study, and we won't go back over all that, just allowing the Bible to interpret the Bible. And that brought us up to this last portion where we finished two weeks ago before we uh, broke for our men's camp out. So look at verse 14 through 16, if you would. That'll be our focus now for the remainder of our time. He says this to Timothy, he says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance and the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Let's stop right there. Now, a famous 15th century French mathematician and and physicist and inventor and philosopher, Pascal Blaise is noted for saying, quote, the last thing one knows is what to put first, end quote. I think we can, I think we can all understand that. I think is it as it, maybe it's our day when we wake up, what's the first thing I need to do? It can be hard to get that prioritized. It can be hard to get that prioritized in the work environment, uh, in, in family, all those kinds of things. You have a big list on Saturday. I think we've all wrestled with that, uh, much like this group of friends who went deer hunting out west and paired off in twos for the day. That night, one of the hunters returned home alone, struggling under the weight of a Boone and Crockett record mule deer. All of his buddies are standing around the campfire. Where's David? Well, David hurt his ankle. He's a couple miles back up the trail. Everybody's like, you left David laying there and you carried the deer back? Well, the hunter said, I figured no one was going to steal David. But I think it's really like the story of two paddle boats. And I think this one really strikes at the heart of this issue. Uh, During the turn of the 19th century, they left Memphis about the same time, traveling down the Mississippi to New Orleans. As they traveled side by side, sailors from one vessel made a few disparaging remarks about the other vessel, and words were exchanged and challenges were made, and then the race began. 
and competition became vicious as the two boats roared down through the deep south. One boat began falling behind. Not enough fuel. There had been plenty of coal for the trip, but not enough for a race. As the boat dropped back, an enterprising young sailor took some of the ship's cargo and tossed it into the ovens. And, and when the sailors saw that the supplies worked as fuel almost as well as the coal, they fueled the boat with the materials they'd been assigned to transport, and they ended up winning the race but burned their cargo. And we can see certainly the reality of these types of decisions every single day. God has, in a very real sense, entrusted you cargo, children, spouses, friends, ministry in the body of Christ. And our job is to do our part in seeing that all this cargo reaches its destination. And yet, like Pascal observed, it can be really difficult to know what to put first, particularly when priorities are not aligned with the Word of God because then things and position and accomplishments can take priority over people. And as you can see in our review of our passage, and certainly in these last three verses, Paul helps clarify priorities for Timothy. That's what he's doing. Just making sure Timothy knows what to do first. It can be a little intimidating in, in his situation. What's the most important thing I have to do? Paul clarifies that. Pursuing godliness moves to the first spot. And, and what success looks like in that pursuit from God's perspective really simplifies things for this young pastor, and it simplifies things for the church. And the last time we were together, we finished verse 14. Let's just look at it very, uh, very uh, briefly. It's, it's really packed full of instruction for this struggling young man in the middle of a very difficult ministry. But Paul continues to be carried along by the Holy Spirit uh, to prioritize Timothy's ministry. So he says this, verse 14, look there. He says, um, he says do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. And, and we saw that the essence of the passage is this, principle number four, success from God's perspective for a faithful minister and everyone else will be ministry done according to spiritual gifting. And during Timothy's tenure there, it was difficult. And Timothy said, you know, I don't need this. And, you know, I can't handle this. All the things we've looked at, it's not going anywhere. I want to quit. And so Paul, what Paul does in this section is he tries to encourage Timothy to strengthen him because Timothy's not going to be successful from God's perspective trying to do things in the flesh. In other words, he can't, uh, by power of personality, force the church back where it needs to be uh, any more than he can use his own thoughts rather than the teaching of the Word of God to bring about sanctification for the believer. And both of those apply. And so Paul reminds him of the real power that's in him, and he gives him this command. He says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. Don't disregard it. And we saw uh, this is where the power to do what you don't think you can do is going to come from. And we also saw that the spiritual gift is really a package that God has designed for Timothy and for every believer. It's going to contain, contain a number of things that are going to equip them, different for everyone, different faith given to everyone, different opportunities for ministry. And so that package is custom designed for you inside the church. Uh, it's a channel by which the Spirit of God ministers to the body of Christ. It's all different for everybody, but it's important. And we looked at a number of passages that help us understand uh, the biblical nature of spiritual gifts. And so you can go back and catch that if you need to. But we saw there's this definite gifting and definite equipping and definite placing that goes on for every believer. And Timothy and others can see all of that, and they can be told all of that. And then we saw objectively, uh, Timothy, that, that that gift given to Timothy was affirmed publicly in two ways. Uh, we looked at those two ways, and we clarified the meaning so it's not confusing. 
And then this last part of verse 14, he says, which was, look there, was bestowed on you through, here it is, number one, prophetic utterance, and number two, laying on of hands by the presbytery. So we took a, a message and just clarified that so we were understood how that's supposed to work and what that looks like. And there was obvious and objective public affirmation uh, that that gift was a direct revelation from God and a confirmation from the church. And we looked at where these two things likely occurred. And we saw that part of this is not normative for today. This, this uh, uh, an objective affirmation from the Holy Spirit, a prophetic utterance that said, this is the man for me. It's much like what happened with Paul and Silas. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Paul and Silas for me. So we understand in that transition period from the prophets and then into the, the book of Acts, which is not prescriptive for what we're supposed to do in the church today, it shows us how the church was set up. Then we move into the epistles and we see how the church is to function. We understand it's not prescriptive then, uh, normative for today. And we looked at back at 1 Timothy 3 and saw how uh, those who are in leadership in the church are called by the Lord. And so you can go back and catch that and review that on your own. But the essence is, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, hey, we know you're gifted specifically for the ministry God has for you. Every believer is, and we were there when it all began. And that's what he's doing. He's reminding them, you know, you have spiritual gifting, and we were there when the Holy Spirit, by a revelation through prophecy, confirmed, take this guy with you, Paul. I need this guy. And then we put our hands on you, us and the other elders. Don't forget that. He says, stir up that gift. Make sure that's part of what you're doing. No matter how hard it is, you can't bail out. The Lord's put you there, Timothy. And now fulfill it. Don't neglect it. Carry it out to the very end. And so we saw that Paul exemplified that in his own ministry. We took a lot of time to show how Paul didn't mind hardship. He wasn't concerned about beatings. He didn't care about going somewhere and going to prison. What he was mostly concerned about is faithfully discharging his gift for the church. The Lord be magnified and people come to faith. And then he says to Timothy, Verses 15 and 16, that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. He says, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Play close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you'll ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. And so as we read that, we can really sum that up. Success from God's perspective for the faithful minister will be ministry done with diligence. I think that's the easiest way to kind of sum up all of those things. Now you can see uh, Paul is referring to some things. He's just coming back around a couple times saying, this is important. This is important. This is very important. Make sure that you pay attention to these things. It's really an overarching command and a focus for Timothy. And Paul just calls all of this immediate instruction to remembrance. In verse 15, he says, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them. And we're going to see in just a minute, that word absorbed isn't part of the Greek sentence. Make these matters, though, your business. Be wrapped up in these things. In fact, it just says, instead of absorbed, it says, be in them. And each attempt, I think, here is just to try to capture in English idiom the total involvement and intensity of the exhortation. So when he says, take pains, melatao, present active, again, imperative. This is a command to Timothy, take pains. And it's actually the word, it's a compound word, it's word for premeditate and care. So it's translated imagine, to care for, or to think about attending carefully, think ahead about how you're going to do all these things. And I love that. And, and, and in other words, Timothy, these things are your primary concern. And we're going to see why in just a minute, but they're primary concern. So just keep on giving serious consideration to everything I've said to you prior. So the clear instruction from the Word of God, command to teach it. Give clear thought to how you're going to go about doing this. 
Premeditate on how this is going to be discharged in your life. Focus on your message material. What have I given you? Discharge that to the church. And then constantly ponder how to make sure your character is marked with godliness. Think in advance. Plan out in, as you go along. How can I mark my character with godliness? What do I need to exclude from my life? What does my faith look like? What does my love look like? What's my speech look like? How about my conduct? Constantly working your way through these kinds of things. How to make sure your character is marked with godliness. Think through it. That's what he's telling him. Take pains with these. Be absorbed in them. Be absorbed in how you're you're going to maintain a thoroughly biblical ministry. Expository, exegetical teaching along with application. How are you going to do that? Think about it. Why? Because this is primarily important for everything that goes on in the church. Teaching, teaching, teaching. Keep thinking about, fix your attention on how to operate inside your spiritual gifts. Discover what those strengths are. Use them in the ministry. Letting supernatural power do the transforming work. Meeting actual needs, not felt needs. What is the real issue? The Holy Spirit's going to be able to get right to that. And you can say this all in a Pauline voice if you want. I did this in my office. Because that's the actual commands here. Take pains with them. Be in them. Think through them beforehand and give yourself totally to them. So here it is. If you're not doing it, you're planning it. Because there's a component of tactic here. A, a, a component of anticipation. An aspect of, of pre-planning in the wording. He is to be, and we're to be, of course, by example, because that's why this is here, totally immersed in either doing ministry or planning to do ministry. And yes, you have your jobs, and yes, you have your responsibilities, and yes, you have to do them well, but in the, in the course of your life, in priority, you understand you're going to be either thinking about it or doing it. And if your gift is teaching, either you're teaching the Word of God or you're getting ready to teach the Word of God. And then he says, be absorbed in them, which we saw just a minute ago. Absorbed isn't there. It's put there to help uh, us understand clarity, but it's actually be in these things. In other words, this is all of life. That's the level of commitment. Both of these and, and the following are just ways of objectively describing what diligence looks like. Nothing less, nothing more. And, and here's a warning for you and an encouragement to you. When you're committed like this, the Lord will always have something for you to handle. He's always going to bring something into your life where you can be his hands or feet or his comfort or his admonition or his exhortation or his eyes or his ears. You're always going to have that coming in. You're always going to have people seeking counsel from you. You're going to have people asking your advice. Why? Because the Lord has equipped you and you've, you're in these things and you're taking pains with them and then the Lord uses you as his tool, see? And the other side is this. If you're never finding yourself giving some spiritual advice, if you don't find yourself in a position where you could be in a hardship and you have to really apply these things to help somebody else, listen, can I tell you, perhaps you're not equipped like you think you are and so the Lord's not being able to use you. So these are important issues and, and need to be really kind of a litmus test of where you are. The Lord's always going to have something for you to handle. And, he, ha and he, he wants you to take pains with him and be absorbed in him, he says. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, so that your progress will be evident to all. Your progress will be evident. And part one of diligence, being taking pains and being in him, is part of diligence, diligence is always going to be growth. It's always going to be growth. Part of the life of the believer, any believer, part of the life of an elder, part of the life of a deacon is going to be growth. 
And for Timothy, of course, as a young man, Paul wants to make sure there are no reasons for the Ephesian church not to follow him, as we talked about before. So he's going to be an example of godliness. But growth is always going to be part of being diligent in these kinds of things. It should be visible. It should be evident, plain to see. Because just obviously, what does let your, but that your progress will be evident to all. What does progress admit? Well, it admits that you aren't where you need to be yet, right? If you're not where you need to be yet, then obviously there needs to be some growth. And Paul gives him all of these commands, and he says, work on these things, be in them, take pains with them, and it'll be obvious that you're growing. Because, beloved, you don't have to convince people that you have no flaws. They already know that you have some. You just need to let them make sure they see you growing. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul said, in essence, the same thing about himself. Here's what he says. Not that I have already attained or have already become perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which for, for which also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Ultimately, we should be making progress towards Christ's likeness. And that's not subjective. It's very clear here. But isn't that interesting? Making progress towards Christ's likeness. I haven't already attained it, but he says, listen, I'm going to put behind what's behind. I'm not going to be able to change what I've done now and in the past, but what I can change is now what the future looks like. I'm going to be diligent to move ahead, to begin to grow. And so... We have this standard, and, and we hold this up each day. We're reading it, and, and it lets us know what we're to do, which is why we encourage you constantly, be in the Word of God on a daily basis. Be holding up the Holy Standard in front of yourself. Be seeing the promises. Be looking at the instruction. That's how you're going to grow. And even with the standard, we can't achieve any part of it apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, a yielding to His prompting. That seems to be what Paul's indicating in his own life in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. You know, as you think about Philippians, it's just really simple, isn't it? We, we think about learning what's pleasing to the Lord. Christianity is pretty simple. It's learning what's pleasing to the Lord. Christianity is pretty simple. Putting behind what's behind and moving forward and growing. And then we proclaim him admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so we may present every man complete in Christ. Pretty simple, right? You're moving from incompleteness to completeness. It's easy to describe Christianity in that way. For this purpose, I also labor. So the work has to be there. There has to be some effort. But mark this, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. We can't be this kind of person but God, through His Spirit, can enable us. See, And I'm so grateful for that. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, mark it again, according to the power that works within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I don't think you, know, you can do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think and think that somehow applies to some hobby you've got or some goal you have for your future. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with the Holy Spirit equipping you and empowering you to work inside His kingdom for His glory. And this, of course, is directed to those who lead the church, elders who guide it and shepherd it. You're probably thinking, well, I'm really glad, you know, all these pastors get to hear all this stuff because they really need it. All these missionaries and deacons, make sure they listen up close. Well, let me tell you something. 
It is directed, as we've seen, not just to them, but to every believer. Because there's only one standard of holiness. And those who lead are to lead by example and set the pattern. So no one's off the hook. And so he tells Timothy, he says, you need to be committed at this level. You need to be diligent because, of course, that's success from God's perspective. That's what God expects. And he's pleased with that effort. And, and so diligence is going to include growth. And then look at verse 16. We're going to see something else that's going to include here in a minute. Verse 16 says, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things. So he goes back around again and grabs a hold of the importance of it and pulls everything he's been teaching Timothy back into his mind. Everything he's just said. And it's going to include two more commands. Here it is. Pay close attention. Epecho. Uh, present active imperative. A compound verb. Epi is on. Combined with echo. Gives the idea of wearing something. Put it on. In other words, Paul says, everything I've been teaching you, wear it. Let that be the fabric of your life. What's he been talking about? Personal habits, the approach to the Word of God. He says, Timothy, put that all on. So pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. And I love this because that balance of life and doctrine is really key to spiritual success. What do I mean by that? Doctrine has everything to do with life because that's what we believe about God determines how we live. And the more we know about God and His workings, the more we're going to love Him and the better we'll serve Him. And so here's the question. Do you love Him now? Will you love Him less if, if you learn more about Him and His Word? So the great need of people today is to know more of God, to know more doctrine, because doctrine is the most practical thing in life. And in addition to that, the balance to that is a godly lifestyle. That's the shoe leather of doctrine. Because if we do not live according to what we know of God and His Word, then either we're going to have to change it, which is what happens in a lot of churches. You've got ministers who are not aligned with the Word of God and don't have a biblical worldview. And so they change the Word. They peddle it. They adulterate it. So they won't look bad and you won't feel bad. Or people will disbelieve what we say. And listen, that can happen in your family too, okay? You want to make sure your kids will reject Christ? Then take them to church on Sunday and live differently the rest of the week. And when they hit their senior year, they will depart the church and they'll never look back. Because they can pick out a phony really fast. Listen, if you're telling them one thing and doing something else, if you're saying don't talk like this and you talk like this, listen, there's inconsistency. You're going to have a hard enough time doing battle against the culture around your kid and the influence that that brings in constantly and the draw that that brings them. Let alone if you compromise it by living one way and saying something else. It works the same way in the church. Paul says, listen, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Both of those things. Make sure that they add up. And, and see, that's exactly what's happened. A lot of people in the church today, they've departed from the faith because what they heard and what they saw didn't line up. That's what's going on in the Ephesian church during Timothy's tenure. It's still going on now. Either you have pastors who are adulterating the word of God, and so they're not being fed, and people are being deceived, and we saw that early on in, in chapter 1, or you got people who, who uh, are not living what they say. They're saying one thing, but it's, it's compromised what, what, uh, by what they're doing, and so people are departing. So he says, pay close attention to yourself, put it on, these things, and your teaching. Then he says, persevere in these things. The present active imperative, epimeno, again, epi is on, meno, stand. So immerse yourself, wear it, 
stand on it or abide in it. Wear it as a garment. Just a great illustration of what the authentic pastor is going to look like, what the authentic believer is going to aspire to. And, and this is also very important for your ministry and an indication of success from God's perspective. So you're going to have to be diligent. He's just describing what diligence looks like. And he says then, for as you do this, present active participle, so this is the continuing reality of your life. First of all, diligence is going to include growth, and you will ensure, here's the other part, salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. So diligence is going to include fruit. Diligence will include growth. You're going to grow in your relationship to the Lord if you're diligent. And diligence is going to include fruit. Now, that's an interesting turn of phrase. When you read this, you'll ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. But it really isn't that complicated. And and I want to give you some illustrations from the Word of God that will help you understand uh, what he's talking about when he says you'll ensure salvation for yourself and those who hear you. In 2 Peter 1, verse 5, one of my favorite passages in 2 Peter and in all the New Testament, because we've used, I've used it so much in the lives of people, and for myself as well, as you read this. But listen to the, the essence of it, and you get the same type of wording, uh, salvation for yourself, uh, clarity of, of salvation, those kinds of things. He says, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, and there's our word diligence, so be diligent in your faith, and in diligence is going to look like supply moral excellence. You mean I got to add things to my faith? Actually, it's quite a few things. Now, you're not going to do it outside the power of the Holy Spirit. There's some things that need to be added to this relationship you had, which you didn't. You didn't initiate. The Lord saved you. He called you from dead to life, and he secured you. You don't secure yourself. But in this faith, what? Add to that faith moral excellence. You're always taking a look at what you're allowing in your life. Compare it to what the Word of God says. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And continue to grow in your understanding of the Word of God. And in your knowledge, self-control. Now, how are you going to get more knowledge? You're going to have to read, right? And in knowledge, self-control. The more you know about the Word of God, the more it's going to impact what you do. And in your self-control, perseverance, faithfully over the long haul. And in your perseverance, godliness. You're resembling more your Savior. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. That's the horizontal outworking of being like Jesus. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities, mark this, are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfaithful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's implied there? It's possible to be useless and it's possible to be unfruitful. You understand you'll stand before the beam of seat judgment. What you don't want to hear is the majority of your life was useless and unfruitful. And so that part's going to be done away with. And all you're going to have is your robe of righteousness. You see? That's not what you want. That could be the case if you're not adding these things to your faith, but you don't want to be there. And if you're adding them, it's going to render you, it's going to stamp you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the other side. For he who lacks these qualities, so you're not working on them, you're not adding to your faith, is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren... Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. So in your adding to your faith these things, applying yourself in diligence to these things, what do you do? You make more certain about his calling and choosing of you. Did you get lost in the process? No. You were already born again. But it's hazy, isn't it? It's hard to remember. 
And people are sometimes depressed, like, I don't even know if I know Christ. Well, let's start back here. Are these things part of your ongoing diligence in your life? Because they are. It's going to make it really clear your relationship with Christ. As long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Are you working your way into the kingdom? No. What are you doing? You're clarifying where the kingdom is and what's important and what my life purpose is supposed to be. It's not unclear to you that ending. You see it coming. You're longing for that. Why? Because your, your life is made up of things that begin to help you be conformed into the image of Christ. Scripture's clear about this. The one who perseveres, give evidence of being in the faith. So he says, if you persevere in holiness and truth, you'll save yourself. You'll come into full salvation. See, also, if you persevere in godliness and truth, you'll affect others who hear you by bringing them the message of salvation. We don't actually do the saving. Uh, we don't save ourselves and we don't save other people. But we're the agent of that as we preach the word of God as we live a godly life. You see that, right? You just make it clear to everybody else. Make it clear to yourself what the actuality, the reality of your life is. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, much the same vein. So he says, Paul says to the church in Philippi, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Are you working your way into salvation? No. Now, now that we have a basis of understanding, what does he mean? Do the things saved people do. You mean I can't just rest in my salvation? You can rest in the knowledge that you are secure beyond anything you can do to impact it. But that's the only rest you get. Otherwise, you have to be diligent. And in diligence, that's not self-described. Diligence is going to look like what we just read. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You desire to do it and you do it for his good pleasure, the Holy Spirit at work in you. We're not the source of salvation for ourselves. We're not the source of salvation for anyone else. And I think, um, and perhaps this might be helpful to you, uh, John Calvin has a commentary on this passage, and it's very telling, as he certainly isn't known for minimizing God's role as the author and finisher of our faith. But I, I like this. I'm going to share it with you because I think it's instructive as we finish today. He says this about this passage, quote, Nor ought we think it strange that Paul ascribes to Timothy the work of saving the church, for certainly... All that is gained to God is saved, and it is by the preaching of the gospel that we're gathered to Christ. And as the unfaithfulness or carelessness of a pastor is ruinous to the church, so the cause of salvation is justly ascribed to his faithfulness and is, here's our word, diligence. True, it's God alone that saves, and not even the smallest portion of his glory can lawfully be bestowed on men but God parts with no portion of his glory when he employs the agency of men for bestowing salvation. And that's exactly it, end quote. That captures the essence of the passage. We don't bring salvation to anyone. We don't cause that to happen. We're the agent, though, by which people either may reject or accept. And mark this, beloved. By careful attention to his own spiritual condition and his teaching ministry, 
Timothy and all ministers and every believer, as we just talked about, even in your own family and working your way out, work out their salvation, as Philippians says, and bring the message of salvation to others also. And the other side of it, which is just as dire, both of those in the pulpit and those in the seats can impede or do all that is humanly possible to be done to cast others into a Christless eternity by not paying attention to these things. There has to be both sides. Do you see that? If on the one hand, by your diligence and faithfulness, you bring salvation's message to people as they watch your life and doctrine, the other side is just as valid that you can do everything possible to make sure people go into a Christless eternity if your life and your doctrine don't line up. Or if you're not diligent in what you're supposed to do for the kingdom. Do you see? Both of those are just as valid. And as we end up this, with this whole section, I, I want to ask you a few questions. Paul's reiterating this with Timothy. You know, he's just pulling everything back in. We've already been talking about this. This is how important it is. I'm going to say it two times. I'm going to tell you to be in it. I'm going to tell you to stand in it. I'm going to be, tell you to be clothed with it. I'm going to say these are the most important things you can do because in doing these, you're going to ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. This is absolutely imperative. He's just reiterating. We've looked at all that, which is why we could pass through this passage rather rapidly without explaining all of it because you've seen it. So here's the question as we get to the application of the, of the passage. Here's the questions that we want to make sure uh, we are applying correctly. What am I like? Am I consistent? How's my teaching? How's my life? How's my love? How's my faithfulness? How's my purity? Do I really believe what I say I believe? And am I believing it more as time goes on? These are only a few of the questions that need to be asked, but these are legitimate questions. If we want to apply this passage, not what does it mean to me, but what does it mean? As we think about one standard of godliness, even in, in those who lead the church in 1 Timothy 3, we know that there's just one standard of godliness. That those who lead the church have to, they have to submit to it. Has, there's no negotiation there, but that's only there so people can see what that's supposed to look like. And beloved, I think if we understand Bill's message from last week, and our responsibility to the gospel, coupled with our study today. We have to know with certainty the only reason we've been left here is because we are agents by which God brings the grace of salvation to lost people. If you want to talk about priorities and not burning the cargo, that rises right up to the top. You have to do your life and you have to work hard. You have to do the things we've talked about and nobody's, nobody's diminishing any of that. Okay, because that's part of your testimony. But ultimately, you have to know, as a redeemed individual that the Lord has brought into the kingdom, the only reason you're left here is because you are an agent by which God brings grace and salvation to lost people, or if you're not submitting to all that, you are an agent by which you are doing everything humanly possible to make sure people are cast into a Christless eternity. Listen, you don't want to be on that side, okay? There's plenty of people, plenty even pastors who are on that side. And your life has to line up with the message you preach. That's the sum of the passage. And holiness and commitment to truth moves us along the persevering path of true salvation. And mark it, makes us a blessing 
to all who hear the message. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer as we just think about those things. May the Lord add his understanding to his word, to your, your, your own heart. Lord, we thank you today for time to be with the church. We're grateful for uh, the blessing of fellowship and the blessing of your word as we use that as part of our worship, as we read it. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply? Lord, help us to continue to model that here and in our own private lives as we read the word each day so we might be conformed to the image of your son and in maturity be prioritizing in our lives the things that are most important. Someday we'll stand before your son and in love, having given us the foundation of Christ himself, we'll judge how we built. I pray, Father, if up to this point it's been wood, hay, and straw, that from this point on it will begin to be gold and silver and costly stones. We don't get to describe that ourselves. We don't get to subjectively say, this is my Christly, uh, Christ-like, godly life. Instead, you have the right to order the church. You've told us what we're supposed to preach and how we're supposed to do it and how we're supposed to live. And Lord, we're to bring ourselves into conformity by the power of the Holy Spirit into what you say. Let that be the case, Father, starting today, if not before. Thank you for many who live faithfully. Thank you for their desire to walk in holiness. Thank you for the fact that they are reigning in the flesh and they are desiring to walk in truth and they are loving with their lives and giving themselves away in faithfulness. We thank you for many who do that. Thank you for the ones who brought me to faith who were doing that, people who are still doing it here. Lord, I pray as that fruit is shown, Lord, you get glory. And as the growth is visible, you get glory. And you move us along on that path where others can see and be blessed. I pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake. Amen.